It was a little over a year ago, and we were having basketball tryouts that day. And I think tryouts were on a Sunday afternoon, and they started around 5 o'clock. And I had preached that morning and gone home and was getting ready to head to the courts for basketball. And I got a text that said, did you see what happened to Kobe Bryant? And immediately, I, I was like, I, no, I didn't. And so I jumped on ESPN, and the news was just starting to report at that time that Kobe Bryant and his daughter had been in a helicopter accident. Uh, and as I drove to this place, I was realizing that there was, like, about half the people there had gotten the news. About half of them hadn't. And I had all these boys. We had hundreds of boys there that day that were trying out for our basketball teams. And about half of them hadn't even heard this news before. And Right to start tryouts, which is not the best way to start tryouts, we gathered these boys together and gave them the news that Kobe Bryant had passed away. Kobe was a transcendent basketball player. like He was an amazing basketball player, but he was also a hero in many ways because he was an amazing father. He was a good dad who was present for his kids and loved his kids and was with them and around them. And so these boys who saw him as a hero, not just as a basketball hero, but as a model and a role model in their lives of how to be a good father and a present father and what that actually looks like, were devastated in that moment. And so we took about 15 minutes at the beginning of practice with all of these boys. Some of them were from church. Some of them were not from church. Uh, But we just prayed. We actually, there was tears all over the the gym. Like all of these kids were crying and and we we kind of pulled some kids off to the side because they were so emotional in this moment that they could barely even like participate in the tryouts. Uh, Just two weeks ago, a report came out. They, They did an investigation as to what happened in that helicopter on that moment. And it took them about a year to get to all the findings and to figure out what had happened. It, it, apparently, the, the guy who was the pilot was a man who took missions like this all the time. He flew when you weren't supposed to be flying. He flew when you weren't, everything wasn't cleared and the conditions weren't perfect. And a lot of other pl- places would say, we're going to shut it down and we're not going to go. But he was the kind of guy that said, if you need to get there, I'll figure out how to get you there. I got you. Don't worry. Uh, and the report said this, uh, he, was, he was told not to fly, uh, there was a no-fly zone at that moment. He got in the clouds, and as he got in the clouds, he got disoriented, and as he got disoriented, here's what the report said, as he became disoriented, and as he reached the clouds, he abandoned his training, and ended up running into a, a mountaintop, a hill. Uh, what happens often to many of us? is when we get into that space of disorientation, when we get into the desert, when we get into the battle, when we get into these places where it feels like there's this stress all around us, what happens is we abandoned our training and we panic. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of awakening kingdom dreams, this idea of becoming a community that actually lives for the kingdom dreams that God has equipped you for, that he's prepared you for in advance, and that he's called you to, and we believe that every single person in the church, that every single person who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that every follower of Jesus has a kingdom dream. They have a kingdom occupation. They have a kingdom calling. We are ambassadors who are called to live into these kingdom callings. The challenge for us, though, is that to get there, it takes crossing a desert. 
To get there, it takes climbing a mountain. To get there, it takes this season of disorientation. So we've been working with this kind of graphic right now, and I know that I'm trying to catch you up on like six weeks of things in three minutes. Uh, so it may be worth you going back if you've missed some of these messages, but there's this idea that we have this first mountain that we're climbing on. It's this first kind of journey of our life. For some of us, it's the first half of our life where we're oriented around a certain way or a certain lifestyle or a certain way of doing things. And then what happens is God sends us into the desert. It happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It even happened to Jesus. Remember, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before he lived into his second calling, the second half of his life, the second mountain that God had called to. Before his ministry began, he had to go through a desert. And if Jesus had to cross a desert in order to get to his ministry, then it would be silly for us to imagine that we don't. And in that desert and in that mountain comes disorientation. In that mountain, in that desert comes trouble and trials and the clouds are going to come. And the question is, will we abandon our training and run back to the first mountain? Or will we get there? The message in Proverbs 29 verse 18 says this, when people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But listen to this, I love this phrase. But when they attend to what is revealed, they are most blessed. I love that language. When we attend to what is revealed, when we actually pay attention to our lives, when we pay attention to what is God doing and how is God working, when we're present to ourselves and to God, when we listen to our lives and pay attention, then what happens is our calling gets brought into the light, our understanding of what we're supposed to be doing and why we're here and why we live in the community that we live in and why we operate at the workplace that we work in and all of these things become clear and we can actually attend to what has been revealed through our lives. The problem for many of us is that we're asleep, is that we've been living fast asleep. We're, we're, we're going through the day, we're checking in and checking out, but we're not really awake to our spiritual journey into what's actually happening. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we with unveiled faces behold the glory of God, for we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the, to the other, for this is from the Lord who is in the Spirit. We're being transformed from glory to glory. Every single moment, every single day, every single month, every single year, there is this new transformation of understanding that God is not finished with us yet. That there's still transformation to happen. There's still growth that's happening inside of us. There's still new mountains to climb. There's still new kingdom visions that there's always something on the other side of the desert that's more beautiful. And so we're transformed into our journey and this, this takes place between these two mountains. And transformation is hard. Changing ourselves and changing our cultures is, is never easy. It's never easy work, working for injustice, working against oppression, working towards the kingdom of God and the glory that God has called us to is always hard work and there's always gonna be obstacles and there always is gonna be battles and giants and mountains and deserts all throughout scripture. Think of all the obstacles that are in place for God's people to get to God's plan. And if those obstacles are in place for David and Abraham and Noah and Paul and Peter, if those obstacles are in place for Joseph, if those obstacles are in place for, for, for all of these people in Scripture, we need to understand that those obstacles will be in place for us. And so sometimes what happens is we view preparation as punishment. 
We believe that when we're sitting to the desert, that God is, is against us, that God is fighting us, that God is, is angry with us, that God is punishing us, that God is, is, is retributive. When actually what happens in the desert is God is creating us and making us new. That doesn't mean it's gonna be easy, and that doesn't mean there's not consequences for our actions and consequences for our sin and consequences for the brokenness of this world, but it does mean that God is working all things out for his good. That in the middle of the desert, he's not finished and he's still figuring it out and he's still working towards good and towards his glory. And if it's not good, then he's not finished. Sometimes we want our future now when we aren't ready for it. And so we don't have the patience to walk through the desert. We don't have the patience to climb the second mountain. We don't have the perseverance to step in it because we just want God to get us there immediately. And God is changing us from glory to glory and he's teaching us over time who we're becoming. When we're young, we want transformation now. We want action immediately. We want answers right now. And the truth is, what, what's happening is God is creating us. He's making us. He's, he's teaching us. He's training us, not for what's gonna happen next year, but for the lifetime. And so there are lessons that we learn that we can learn really quickly. I can learn my English and math and I can learn certain things and I can just understand them very quickly. There's other lessons that take a lifetime to learn. And when we're gonna be followers of Christ, we're in it for the lifetime. We're in it for the long term. We're in for long obedience in the same direction. We're in for the perseverance path where we're saying, all right, God, I, I, I know that you're creating me to be more like you, and I know you're, you're making me into your likeness, and I know sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's painful, but I'm in it, and I'm here, and I'm taking one step closer to the kingdom every single day, every single month, every single year. Sometimes we abandon our training and we panic when we get in the clouds. But the number one person who will change and be transformed when we, when we consider and pursue and chase after our kingdom dreams is us. I, I think that there's been times where my ministry as a pastor has not been about the ministry I'm doing for the church. It's been about the ministry that God is doing in me. I think there's been seasons where I look around and I'm like, I don't know that anybody in the church was transformed or changed or anything beautiful was happening in the church in that moment, but God was transforming me. He was changing me. It's, it's kind of meta, right? Like in the middle of transformation, God is transforming us. In the middle of this work that he's doing where he's working out all things for his good, he's working out good things in us and he's doing all of these different things over and over and over again in us. Uh, many of you guys know uh, that I'm a city boy and I hate camping. I, I, I don't, I, I do not, I, I despise camping. Many of you after this will say, you just haven't camped right. You're wrong. There is no right way to do it. If you lived in the 1800s or 1700s, live outside. That's fine. We don't have to do that anymore. We have technology, right? Uh, and, and the reason why I hate camping, there's a reason. Like some of us have childhood wounds, right, that, that cause us to view everything through a certain lens, I've got deep childhood wounds. Uh, I became a youth pastor when I was 21 years old. Uh, I inherited a large youth ministry of junior high kids, 
And so I walked in. I remember the first night I walked in, there were 200 junior high kids, and I was a 21-year-old kid and had no idea what to do with them. And junior high kids, I, I'm, I'm serious when I say this. I've said this before. Junior high girls are the meanest mammals on the planet. Like they are meaner than lions and bears. Like they are, they are angry at the world, and they will tell you exactly what is wrong with you uh, all the time. If you want to learn how to preach, learn how to preach in front of junior high girls because they will tell you when you're bad, Right? Well, sometimes in the middle of the message, they'll tell you when you're bad. They will tell you that it's not going well. And junior high boys, they're just stupid, right? They're just, they just don't know what's happening in the world right now. Their body's changing. Their mind's changing. They, God love them. We love you guys. It's a hard season. I've never talked to a, junior, for, to a man who says, you know the period of my life that I'd like to go back to? Junior high. No one. Like, we're all about 25. I'd go back to 25 in a heartbeat. I'm all about that. 18? I'd take 18. 13, I'm out. I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to go back to that space uh, again in my life. So I took over this ministry, and they had a camping trip planned every year. They took 75 kids to this place in Tennessee, and I promise you this is the name of the place, and there's never been a more fitting place. It was called Confrontation Point. And I don't think it caused any confrontation for the children, but man, did it cause confrontation for me. So we go to Confrontation Point, where we show up at this place, and this is before cell phones and before technology and all those, I'm, I'm old, guys, so this is way back in the day. We show up at this place, and we show up at the place that we're supposed to meet the, the leaders of this group. And we've paid them a lot of money, and we have a large group, and I wait for an hour. I wait for two hours. I wait for three hours, and they're still not here. And so I'm finding a payphone, trying to call these people, and eventually a group of, I, I, I want to be generous in my description here, a group of, let's just say college hippies, right? They, they like drove up in the Scooby-Doo van, right? I'm pretty sure they were smoking a little something before they got there. Like, they all show up in, like, these two Scooby-Doo vans, and they're like, hey, what's up, guys? And not organized at all, have no idea what they're doing. Like, I don't know how this has been a business that stayed active, or other people have paid for this more than once, or how they haven't been sued, or how children haven't died doing what they do. And, and so they take us to this campsite, and they pull me aside, and they're like, hey, man, this is how we do it. We, we let the kids do everything. So we just give them these tarps and some ropes and we say, build your tent. And we just, we let them cook all the meals and we're just like, here's the ingredients. You guys make the meals and here's a fire. And I'm like, yeah, but they're 12 and they don't know how to do any of that stuff. And they're like, yeah, but it's fine. They figure it out. <laughs> so I watch for like, it's dark now. And these children are trying to build a tent. They don't know how to build a tent. 90% of them built it at the bottom of a hill, Right? And you know what happened that first night, right? So there's barely covering over us. It starts raining. It all is pouring down the hill. There is literally a river in my sleeping bag as we're going through this. All the children are crying. All of them want to go home. I've got 75 of them and like 10 adults. All of our adults are like, should we get a hotel? Can the church afford it? Like, we don't know. Uh, what, what should we do? Do we leave? Do we go home? And, 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 and so I just took all of the boys and put them in the vans, or all the girls, we put all the girls and put them in the vans and all the boys we found like the one tent that wasn't at the bottom of the hill and crammed all in there. I got bit by something the first night. I don't know if it was a, like a spider or a python, um, but my, 
my entire eye swelled completely shut. Uh, and so I'm walking around the next morning. My eye is shut. I'm soaking wet. I'm freezing. I'm angry at the hippies. And, and I walk out to breakfast. And, and this, no joke, I, there was a child in our youth group who was throwing leaves in the breakfast. And the guy was like, just let him do it, man. Just let him do it. I was like, I'm not letting him do it. Get the leaves out of there, right? I'm like ready to lose my mind. So we go, the first day we go caving. Um, this is why I hate camping, everybody. Can I get an amen, right? We, we, go, we go caving. And so we go into this cavern and, and they, they told us to bring certain things. My best friend at that time was a guy in my wedding, a guy named Chris Ball. He's the funniest guy in the world. He's the closest thing I know to Chris Farley that is actually living. He's just hysterical. He's so funny. And he's been my best friend for a long time. He was in my wedding and he went with me on this trip. And they told us to wear like hiking boots and to bring a flashlight for the cave. And, and my friend doesn't listen. And so he wore, remember Doc Martens? Anybody remember Doc Martens? They're like these kind of slide-on shoes that everybody wore back then. He wore a pair of those, and he had like a, a lantern. It was like a, one of these, it was like, it was electric, but it was like this lantern that you hold like this. So we go into the mud, and immediately they have us start crawling through mud. So his lantern just becomes mud. Right, so it looks like he's just carrying around a pile of mud as we're caving. And about a half hour into it, he loses a shoe completely. And so we've got all these kids digging through the mud, trying to find a shoe. And the whole thing was absolutely hysterical. It was awful. We got out. We're all just muddy and a mess. And then the next day, they're like, we're going climbing. We're going to go rock climbing. And I was like, oh, a child is going to die. I, I honestly, if you would have like given me Vegas odds on a child dying, I would have given it about a 50-50 shot on, on the climbing thing. Um, I actually called my senior pastor and was like, I think a child might die. Like, I don't, he was like, ah, they're fine. So that's how senior pastors are. They don't care. They just, he just didn't want me to bother him on a Saturday. Uh, <laughs> but so, so anyway, we, we get to the climbing part, and I, the climbing was actually really fun. It was really safe. We didn't lose any children. It was, we, we made it through it. Um, but we're climbing on the side of this mountain, and, and I, I had never really done a lot of climbing. And I was young at that time. I was 21 years old. I was skinny. Uh, and, and here's what I realized. I was pretty good at this. I was better than all the junior high kids at this, surprisingly. <laughs> Uh, and, and the first half of the, the first kind of side, the first kind of summit that we went on, I could just lift all, like every, every place we got, I could do it all with my arms, right? So I, I talked to some of our climbing experts, Tater and Kayla and some of those folks over the weekend as, as I was thinking through this illustration, but everything I could do, I could just do with my own arm strength. And so nothing was hard for me. I didn't have to find a hold or find a toehold or figure out where to make the next move or to make the next climb. I just grabbed and just pulled really hard and, and I was skinny enough that I could lift my own weight and I just made it up to the top really easy. And then he said, all right, we're gonna take some of the more skilled climbers and we're gonna take them to this harder part. And we got to this harder part where I couldn't do it with my own strength. Like I couldn't do it just by my arm strength and my own, like there was stuff where I had to reach back one-handed and there was all these kinds of tricky things that I had to do. So I had to actually look and find the toehold and I had to look and figure out where the next step was and I had to figure out all of these different things. And I think in our spiritual journey, there's these moments where we can't climb by our own strength and we have to find a new skill. And many of us in those moments do what I do with camping now, which is we never do it again. 
We reach those moments where we just say, I'm not, I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm done. This is hard. I feel incompetent. I felt awesome on the first summit, right? I'm, I'm just reaching up, getting there in three seconds, and I'm better than all the junior high kids. The second one, there's like this 12-year-old who's much better at it than me. There's, there's different types of stuck when you're climbing. I did some research on this over the weekend. Um, the first one is called rimrocked, which is a really cool phrase. Climbers come up with cool phrases. Rimrocked is when you're going up and you cannot figure out any other way to go up. So there's no path to go higher. So what you have to go is you have to go down in order to find another spot to get back up. Does that make sense? So you're climbing and you get stuck and you're like, I can't, I, I just can't climb any higher. I'm stuck. And so I can't figure out a way up. So I've got to go back down and figure some things out. Uh, the second term is plateaued. This one kind of makes sense. You reach a point where you can't go up or down, but you can go left or right. All right, so you can't figure out a path up. You can't really figure out a clear path down, but you can go side to side and figure out a new path up. The scariest of all of these doesn't have a term for it. I wish it had a term that was cool like Rimrocked. Um, climbers, you guys invent that term and start, start using it, see if it works. Call it a Hardman, uh, something like that. It's, it's this. It's when you can't go up or down or to the side. So you reach a point where you just realize, I am completely stuck here. Which, if you're climbing like a normal person, you're strapped in, right? You've got your wedgie machine that's attached to your waist, and you're, you know exactly what to do, and you're trusting that the people that are holding the ropes at the bottom, what do they call it, belay, belay on? See, I, know, I, I did this 25 years ago, I know what I'm talking about, right? Those people, you just trust that somebody's going to catch you. And so you get stuck in this place. You can't go up and you can't go down. And the only, thing, the only thing you can do is to fall and to trust that your equipment is actually going to catch you. I think there's a deep spiritual term in this also, that there are moments when we're climbing, when we're in the battle, when we're in the desert, and we just don't know the way. We don't know if it's up or down or to the side or to the left or to the right. And the only option we have is to fall back into the loving arms of God and say, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting that you're the God of the climb. I'm trusting that you're the God of my journey. I'm trusting that when I fall, you're going to catch me. And sometimes we fall financially. Sometimes we're like, I don't know how we're going to afford this. I don't know how we're going to provide. I don't know we're gonna have, how we're going to come up with the money for this, but I'm going to fall back into my training and trust that God is there. Sometimes we fall with protection. I, this feels unsafe, and I don't want to feel unsafe. Sometimes we fall back into our wounds and our own brokenness, and we have to deal with our real self, and we have to really look at ourselves because the fall has been difficult, and we have to fall back into those arms. Uh, a, a friend of mine does these workshops where he does this thing called the four conversions. And he asks leaders in those workshops to, to look back through the journey of their life. So think back through the journey of your entire life and think about what are the four most significant conversions that have happened in your life? What are the four most significant changes and transformations that have happened in your life. And he says this, you can't say when I met Jesus, because that's obviously the top one for all of us who know Jesus. You can't say when I got married or when I had a kid. You gotta think through, what are the moments in my life that are like the hinge moments where I actually changed and transformed for the good? And how would you name those? It's a great exercise. If you want some homework this week, 
Everybody, some of you young people, I know you want homework. You're like, you can step into the homework this week. Um, but here's, I want to give you mine. I want to give you my four, and then I want to jump into a text here. Here, here's, here they are. I'll move quickly through. The first is I learned to move from skill and hustle to faith and surrender. Uh, I learned to trust God's power and God's authority rather than my gifting and my ability. Early on in ministry, I thought that I could just be good enough, that I could work hard enough and that the presence of God would show up. Like if I did well, then the presence of God would just, I could conjure up like the the spirit of God to do something in the room if he was pleased enough by me, or if I had worked hard enough, or if my sacrifices were worthy, then he would show up. And I started to learn that my job as a pastor is not to come up with more skill and more hustle, it's to come up with more faith and surrender. It's more about emptying myself than filling myself. Uh, The second thing I learned in ministry in particular is moving from vision first to family first. Uh, The first kind of journey of my life was all about vision, and I'm entrepreneurial and visioneering, and so I had all these ideas and all these dreams, and I was working 70 and 80 hours a week, and I wasn't present for my kids and my wife, and I had to learn how to do ministry in a different way. I had to learn how to do life in a different way, and I had to learn that my family comes before the church which was a really hard thing for me to learn and a really difficult lesson for me to learn. And praise God that Sarah is gracious and kind. The next one was I learned from moving from a place where ambition always leads to where health and integrity wins. Uh, If I had to make choices early on in my ministry over what wins, my ambition would always win. So the dream would always win versus health and integrity And as I got older, I started to realize I would rather do something that's healthy and something that keeps my character intact than do something that gets my name out there more or helps more people know who I am. I'd rather be faithful than famous. And that was a really hard lesson for me to learn as a young leader. The last one, and I I, got to tell you, 2020 has made me wonder whether I've actually learned this lesson. But the last one is moving from being restless and busy to being at peace and rooted. This kind of thing inside of me that's always saying I have to perform and I have to achieve and I have to accomplish and I have to win sometimes wins over me and it causes me to be restless all the time. It causes me to not want to be where I actually am and it causes me to frantically work for solutions to everything until I can find the answer. My, my, my thought process oftentimes is I can work hard enough and solve every problem. But being a pastor, you start to realize really quickly there are problems that can't be solved by hard work. There are problems that can only be resolved by the spirit of the living God showing up. And so learning to be at peace and being rooted in him. And so I want to jump into a familiar passage today. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want to talk about the life of David. Uh, And I want to talk about the story of David and Goliath. Now, I know you guys have heard this a million times if you grew up in the church. But I think this matters for how we navigate the desert and the mountains. I think this matters for what we do when we're in the middle of the battle and things are difficult. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll start with verse 20. David is a shepherd boy. He's showing up to the battle lines where his brothers are fighting. Uh, Goliath, the Philistine giant, is calling out all the warriors. Saul is stressed. The Israelites don't want to fight. They don't want to engage in the battle. And so David shows up. It said, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He was taking lunch to his brothers. 
And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle an army, army against army. And David, this is interesting, verse 22, and, and here's what this points back to. Verse 22 is really significant. It says, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Now, David and Saul are always put at contrast with each other. So if you look at the story of David and you look at the story of Saul, you look at the story of two kings. Saul is the king at that time, and he's a king who's trying to figure out how to be faithful when David has already figured out some of those things. And so scripture sets the two characters side by side so that we can see the difference in how they act and how they interact with God. When Saul is about to become king, he's about to be anointed and is about to become king, he actually hides. And you know where he hides? Scripture says he hides in the baggage. Like he goes and he hides in the middle of where all the luggage is on the back of the battlefield because that's what they would do. They would take all the supplies, they would put them on the back of the battlefield where they're safe. And so he goes back and he actually hides there. And what it says of David here is in verse 22, it says, David left his baggage. There is a way that we can engage the second half of our life, the second mountain that we're called to. There's a way that we can engage the deserts that we're called to cross and our calling where we leave our baggage behind and become something new or there's a way to do it where we carry our baggage with us and we can never be transformed and never be changed. And in order for us to be changed and transformed, there has to be this journey of leaving our baggage behind, leaving our wounds, leaving our brokenness, leaving who I was so that I can become who God has called me to be in the middle of those spaces. Verse 23, it says, as he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Uh, The word Goliath actually means exposer, exposer. And the name David means beloved. And so Goliath is exposing all kinds of fears and bad news and lies that live in the middle of God's people. He's exposing the fear of giants. He's exposing the fear of battle. He's exposing all of these things. And this is what battles do. When we get in the desert, what that does is it exposes us. And if we don't leave our baggage behind, that's baggage that is exposed and it's difficult to deal with and it's difficult to walk through and it becomes this huge weight that we're trying to carry up the mountain because we failed to leave it behind. And so we feel exposed and we feel stuck. Goliath exposed all the bad news and the lies of God's people, that there are giants in the land, that we cannot conquer them, that I've got to do it by my own strength. And there's these lies and this stress that exists beneath the surface that if we don't deal with it on our journey, we're never going to get to our destination. I'm a basketball coach, and so I love watching. I love the game. I'm a better in-game coach than I am a trainer. And so I love to see what's happening, like this defense is doing this, or they have a weakness here, and this is the way our strength plays to their weakness. This is the way we capitalize on the weakness here, those kinds of things. But here's the thing. Most basketball players, especially by the time they get to be older and in high school, they've learned to hide their weaknesses. So there'll be a kid who can't dribble with his left hand, but it's not really apparent until what happens. Until you get up and pressure him. Right? Until the stress of the game actually comes. 
And so all the time when we're playing, one of the first things I ask our team to do is get up really strong and pressure right from the beginning because you start to see the weaknesses of the other team. You start to see, oh, that kid wants to pass the ball the moment he gets it because he's afraid to have it in his hand. And so we're going to capitalize on that and take advantage of that all game, and we're going to score basket after basket unless they put in another ball handler. We're going to realize he can't dribble with his left, so we're going to position ourselves on his left side so that we can take the ball away over and over again. We're we're, we're looking for the stress, but the stress only comes under pressure. The phrase that basketball announcers use is pressure bursts pipes. They say when when we get squeezed, that's what really is inside of us actually comes out. And so here's what happens, guys. If we want to be transformed from glory to glory, If we want to find our true kingdom dream and our kingdom occupation, when we enter into the desert, there is going to be stress and pressure, and we're going to feel it. And the question is, what do we do with that? And so here's the question I want you to wrestle with is, what's the area of your life that the desert is exposing right now? What's the area of your life that when you look at the stress in your life, the stress of 2020, the stress of COVID, the stress of racial tensions and economic tensions and political tensions and relational tensions that our country has gone through together in the last year, what's the stress that that's brought out in you and are you willing to leave it behind so that you can become who God has called you to be or are you still trying to carry it and it can't make it up the mountain? Verse 33, it says, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father and when there came a lion or a bear that tried to take a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose again, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. I don't, that's cool. Grabbing bears by the beard. Uh, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Here's what I want to say to those of you who find yourself in the middle of the desert right now. I want you to understand that God has prepared you for this moment. He doesn't call you to something that he hasn't equipped you for. God's calling, the will of God, will never take you to a place of God, a place where the grace of God cannot sustain you. Let me say it better because I just messed it up. The will of God will never take you to a place where the grace of God will not sustain you. And so if you're in the middle of that desert and you're feeling like, I am so unequipped to deal with this, I don't know how to handle this, this giant seems too big, this mountain seems too high, this desert seems too difficult, in the middle of that, we, God has prepared you for it more than you think. You have the skills, you have the ability, you have the giftedness inside of you to step into that place. I love what Brene Brown says. She says this, we get to the head and the heart through the hands, Sometimes what happens is our head isn't persuaded that we can do it and our heart isn't persuaded that we can do it. And so the only way we get there is by moving our feet and moving our hands and engaging into it. That's why service is such a beautiful discipline as a follower of Jesus. If we don't know what to do, then just serve. Just love, just care for, for people, just bless people, just serve people because we get to the heart and the hands through the, or, or the head through the hands. And sometimes we don't know that we face adversity. So what's the spiritual adversity that you're facing in your life right now? 
What's the giant that's standing in front of you? What's the challenge that you have to actually name in order to move forward? Verse 38, it says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took a staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. Here's our temptation always in the desert. It's to wear somebody else's armor. Our temptation when we're facing a battle, our temptation when there's something big and difficult and challenging in front of us is to believe and trust in someone else's faith rather than our own. It's to fight the battle the way somebody else would fight the battle rather than fight the battle the way that God has prepared us to fight the battle. And we need to learn to fight battles in our own skin. If God has prepared you and equipped you and given all you need for the battle, then you don't have to fight the battle the same way your father would have fought the battle. You don't have to fight the battle the same way that your mother would have fought the battle. You don't have to fight the battle the way your pastor would fight the battle. You don't have to fight the battle the way that whoever is discipling you would fight the battle. You have to hold on to this idea that you have been equipped, that God has given you all you need for the battle, and you can fight the battle in your own skin. David, in this moment, has to learn to trust not in his armor, but in God. What's the armor that we put on to protect us? When I first started preaching, I was working at the same church that I had done the confrontation point thing at. And I was this young youth pastor, and they would give me like, it started off like once every six months I would teach, and then it was like once a month I got to teach, and they were just training me to teach. And the pastor at that time was a guy named Jim Lyon. He's brilliant. He's actually the head of an entire denomination now. He's like an NPR talk show host. Like his voice is real soothing, and he's got a, he actually has a radio show. And, and he, what he does is he, he loves history. And so what he does when he preaches is he'll start telling like a 45-minute story on Winston Churchill, and at the end of it, you're crying and repenting and want to be like Jesus. And so as a young pastor, I'm like, this is what I've got to do. I've got to find some Winston Churchill stories. And so I'm like trying, I didn't know history. I didn't even like history. I like basketball, right? And so I'm like looking for all these things, trying to, and I'm trying to tell these elaborate stories, and it never makes sense, and it never came together. There was a real famous pastor at the time who would do these elaborate props, right? He would bring like these, he'd bring like a, a horse on the stage or something and talk, he'd saddle up your horses or something like that. as a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. Anybody got, anybody with me? Tyler, all right. Uh, um, we need to do that one in a few weeks. I think that would kill. Uh, but there were, there were these like elaborate props and these elaborate, so I started doing these elaborate things. I promise you, I'm embarrassed to say this. I actually thought about not saying this because of my shame, in this, there was a time where I preached a sermon and I rode a motorcycle from the back of the sanctuary to the front to start the sermon. I promise you, I did that. I did, no, I did that. Right? I'm still dealing with my shame because of that. Because I was just trying to be like somebody else. There was, this, there was this Hebrew teacher that I started following and he had this like, he would do this amazing thing where he'd like use the, the, the original Hebrew language or he'd get into the Greek language and he'd start breaking it down and it would just be this incredible, I'm like, I've never heard that before. I never thought about it that way. And so I was trying to like do Hebrew stuff. I never studied languages ever in my life. I, I took Hebrew for three weeks because it was an 8 a.m. class and I dropped it because I didn't want to wake up at 8 a.m. in college. 
College students, are you with me on that one, right? You don't want 8 a.m. classes, and the only time they offered it was 8 a.m., so I was like, I'm out on that. I'm taking Spanish. And take that at four, right? Uh, and, and so I'm, but, but here's what I was doing. I was trying to fight the battle in somebody else's armor. And it's taken me years and years and years. Uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours, right? It's taken me over and over and over again of standing up in front of people where I started to actually find my voice. I don't need a motorcycle or a Churchill story or a Hebrew something. I I can just be me. And if we stay in the battle, if we stay in the desert, and if we are open to say, Lord, okay, transform me in this space, then what happens is we start to become comfortable in our own skin. But when we try and fight the battle with somebody else's armor, then we believe that the impressive armor actually protects us more than the grace of God who's actually sending us. Do you trust God and do you trust yourself? Do you trust that he's actually given you all the gifts that you need to fight the battle that's in front of you? Do you believe that he's with you and that he's good? I'm going to wrap up here. It says, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear, with a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel who you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all may know that there is a God in Israel and all that assemble may know that the Lord saves not with sword or with spear for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. During every battle, there's a surrender, guys. During every journey up the mountain, there is a surrender. There's this moment where we say, not my will, but yours be done. And there's this moment on our journey to, to awaken our kingdom dream where we get in this space where we have to actually surrender something. We have to give something up to get to where God has called us to go. And David, in this beautiful way, offers up his life in that moment. He offers up his safety. He offers up this sacrifice and says, whatever it takes. And here's the beautiful thing. David comes on to be this amazing warrior. Right? There's these stories of David's mighty men. It sounds like a comic book when you read what David did. Like they battle and there's all these battles. And it's like David killed a billion people and chopped off the head of a lion and pulled on its beard. And like all those kinds of stories. Psalm 1 Samuel 18, 7 says this. This is what the people would chant as David and Saul walked into the, to the community. They said, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David was this great warrior, but you know what David never did again? Not once. In all the battles David fought for the rest of his life, not once did he pick up a rock and a sling again. Never. Did he fight with the same weapon that he fought the last time? Because what God does in the desert is he prepares us for the next battle and we move from glory to glory and breakthrough to breakthrough. And I don't have to fight the battle that I fought in the past because the victory already belongs to the Lord. And I don't have to fight the battle that I fought three years ago because I already have victory in that space and I've already won. And so I trust in the victory and I learn to fight the battle with a new weapon. I learn to take up a new armor. I learn to put on a new likeness of Christ in me. And I learn to move from glory to glory. That doesn't mean that we don't still have weaknesses. It doesn't mean that we still have fallbacks. It doesn't mean that we still have moments where we have to think through what we're going through, but it means that we're progressing and we're moving from glory to glory and from place to place and that we walk in victory.
I don't have to pick up the rock and the sling again because I've been given a sword now and that sword actually fits. My armor actually fits. I actually know who I am. I've been binge watching Friday Night Lights. I watched it a long time ago. I don't, and and I, I watched it when I was younger and it felt really cool then. It feels a little soap opera-ish now. But Coach Taylor is cool. Anybody with me? Like he's one of the best sitcom characters I've ever seen. Like I love the presence of like a real dad and a real coach. And it's a movie about a football team. And in the locker room, they all gather together right before they go out to the game. And he says, clear eyes, pure hearts. And the team yells, that wasn't very good, but that's, you, you got it. And there's this one scene at the very beginning of it. And it's all the town has gathered to watch the high school football team go out on the field. And there's this moment where all the former state champions hold up their rings. And there's all these old men that are holding up these rings of a state championship that they won when they were in high school. And there's this girl who's sitting over on the side and she's like, look at these fools. Like the greatest moment of their life was 30 years ago. Like they, they don't have a vision for the next battle. They don't have a vision for the next mountain. They're just living in the past. They're living in a victory that they had 30 years ago. And for, for those of us who are living in that space, I want you to, to know that there's something good and beautiful ahead of you. That the battle's not over. I don't care how old you are. The battle's not over. I don't care how many battles you fought. The battle's not over. Uh, the, there, there's another mountain. And on that mountain, we actually experience the presence and the glory and the goodness of God. And on the journey, as we're struggling and we're battling, we actually experience the grace and the peace and the mercy of God. And so all of it is good. All of it is glory. All of it is victory because we just learn to walk through the stuff. So what's the mountain that you're called to climb in this season of your life? What's the conversion that God is working out in your life right now? What is he changing you from and who is he changing you to? And do you actually have the courage to walk through it? And not when the clouds come, abandon your training. But stay strong and keep pushing through. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a vision for the second mountain. I pray that you would give us dreams of a kingdom life that is alive and beautiful and wonderful and full. And I pray that we would be able to recognize that in the, in the desert and in the battle and as we're climbing the mountain and when things feel incredibly difficult that you're with us and that you're good. And that when we get victory and when we get breakthrough that you're there and that you're good. So teach us to walk into the desert. Teach us to stand firm through the difficulty. And teach us to be transformed in the middle of it. In your name we pray. Amen.